The title of the message this morning is Live Like You Were Dying. Live Like You Were Dying. If you're a frequent attender of the chapel, you'll know that it is our pattern to preach expositionally or to preach through large sections or books of the Bible. Uh, We have stepped away from that model of preaching last week, this week, and next week uh, because we are walking through our vision statement for the next couple of weeks. Uh, And so the message, as you'll receive it this morning and next week, is much more topical in nature. Keep keep that in mind. In other words, we don't have necessarily one text in front of us that we're working our way through, uh, seeking to shine light on it, to expose the meaning of the text. We're going to be jumping around a bit this morning and looking at the topic of evangelism discipleship. would encourage you to take notes if uh, if you desire this morning. Dawson Trotman a great evangelist and a great uh, model of life-on-life discipleship said much of the heart is detangled as it passes through the tip of a pen. And uh, so I would encourage you to take notes. You'll listen better if you do. Last week, we began a three-week sermon series aimed at unpacking our vision statement. We have three, three banners up here with three in-words on them, uh, neighborhoods, nations, next generation. You'll see our vision statement on the top of your uh, bulletin this morning. It is simply this. Cape Bible Chapel exists. Why? To be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission to make and multiply disciples of Christ. Where? In our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation. I said last week that our vision statement speaks to two things. One, our identity, who we are. We are a gospel-centered community of worshipers, and it also speaks to our purpose. What are we to do? We are on mission to make and multiply disciples of Christ, where? In our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation. Last week, let me just kind of give you a, a running start here to the message this morning, I gave you three we believe statements as we've kind of sought to unpack, or if you take our vision statement and you look at it like a diamond, as we seek uh, to to look at the various facets of our vision statement, I gave you three what we believe statements. They were this. We believe as a local church that the gospel or the cross should be at the center. It should be central to everything that we do. Okay? Secondly, we believe that God has designed us, the body of Christ, to live and to minister within a community of like-minded believers. So we do every week. We, we come here and we assemble and we, we worship and we encourage, we challenge, we edify one another. We hold each other accountable. We're filled up so that we can go out into the community and go out into the world and pour ourselves out in evangelism. Third and lastly, we believe that exuberant worship is the goal of our lives and the fuel for all our ministry. Simply made this statement in closing last week that all ministry, every holy endeavor with which we would set our hearts and minds and hands to do must be the overflow of worship. It must be the overflow, the bubbling forth, the spilling over of worship. This morning, I'm going to give you two more what we believe statements as we continue to unpack our vision statement. This morning, we are going to center our time upon the word mission in our vision statement and the short phrase to make and multiply disciples. Mission and to make and multiply disciples of Christ. Let me give you two what we believe statements that would be congruent with those words. Let me begin with a question this morning. 
When you think about the lost world, how do you envision it being reached with the gospel? When you think about the lost world around you, how do you envision that world, that lost world being reached with the truth of the gospel message? Unfortunately, a large number of Christians don't envision the world being reached with the gospel. It's not on the forefront of their mind. It doesn't keep them awake at night. It's not a thought that preoccupies their mind. Others envision or hope that someone else will reach the world with the gospel. That would be that subset of, of, of Christians that say, yes, I, I hope the gospel goes to the uttermost. I just hope somebody else takes it there. That's for the pastors. That's for the vocational missionaries. That's for the campus outreach staff. That's for those who have been given, quote, the gift of evangelism. I just hope somebody else does it. I, I want the nations to know. I just hope somebody else tells them. And even a smaller number of Christians ask this question, what role can I play personally, individually, in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ? I can't help but wondering sometimes how differently this vision to reach the world with the gospel might look in our lives if we understood that life was short. If we took into consideration the brevity of life, the relative short span between the day that we breathe life's first breath and the day that we breathe life's final breath, if we took into consideration the shortness, the fact that life is a mist or a vapor that appears for just a little while and then quickly vanishes, if we took that into consideration, how much differently might our lives look for the advancing of the gospel to the nations? I wonder. I wonder. You see, people's lifestyles almost always change when the reality of the brevity of life begins to set in. Some of you country music fans out there are probably well acquainted with Tim McGraw's song, Live Like You Were Dying. The story behind that song is how the diagnosis of cancer at an early age radically altered the way Tim McGraw's father lived the rest of his life. In other words, the song recounts how his father's life changed when he began to live like he was dying. Now, I've probably already lost some of you because you're now humming uh, this tune in your mind. And, and, and you're thinking, yes, when I realize life is short, I do things like I, I go skydiving, I go rocky mountain climbing, I love deeper, speak sweeter, and I give forgiveness that I had once been denying. And in the song, Tim's dad says this, he says, Tim, I just hope someday you get the chance to live like you were dying. That you begin to live like tomorrow was a gift and you've got eternity to think about what you'll do with it. Wow. There's some theology in that song. Everyone's a theologian, by the way, right? Christians aren't the only theologians. Everyone is a theologian. It just means what you believe to be true about God. It may, be, it may be true, it may be false, but everyone is a theologian. There's some theology in the lyrics of that song there. I don't know anything about Tim's father spiritually, but I know that he had come to understand that every second in life counts. Have you come to understand that? Have you come to understand that every moment, every passing second of your life matters, and it matters for eternity? Do you think about 
what you're going to do with it in light of eternity. Time is precious. It's fleeting, and it's meant to be invested rather than just being spent. I like to daydream from time to time. I like to ask myself questions from time to time. One of the questions that I dream about and ask myself is this, what could it look like if God's people, the church, began to see God's method for reaching the world with the gospel, they were gripped with it, gripped in their heart with it, and then they began to live out that vision as if every second counted. What might the church look like? How might we mobilize individually and collectively in the world for the cause of advancing the gospel among the nations. You see, our lives are short. We don't have much time to share the gospel. Consider that for a moment. As a believer sitting here this morning, your life is short. You're older today than you were yesterday. You're a day closer to death today than you were yesterday. Our lives are short. We don't have much time to share the gospel Now, in saying this, we're not denying in any way, shape, or form the sovereignty of God and how God wants to use us with the relative short span of life that we have left. God God is sovereign over every moment. But the reality of the fact is we don't have much time left to share the gospel with the lost. And the lives of the lost are also short. They don't have much time to hear and respond to the gospel. Think for a moment here. The current world population is somewhere in the ballpark of 7.3 billion people. 7.3 billion people. And it's estimated that someone dies and slips into a Christless eternity about every 1.7 seconds. About every time your heart beats. Take a couple of fingers and find your pulse real quick. You can find it here or here, in case you weren't aware. Okay, here or here. Just take a second to find your pulse. About every time your heart beats, someone slips into a Christless eternity. I want to put a number up on the screen for you here. This is just a counter that counts one every 1.7 seconds, okay? If 1.7 people die per second and slip into a Christless eternity, those numbers, if you continue to multiply them, would be 102 people per minute, 6,120 people per hour, almost 147,000 people a day. 53.5 million people annually, and in your average lifespan, if you live to be 70, somewhere in that ballpark is the average lifespan, in your average lifespan, 3.7 billion people will die and slip into a Christless eternity. That is almost half the current world's population. Now, Let me ask you the question again. How might our lives look different for the cause of Christ and the sake of advancing the gospel to the nations if we realize that every single second counts? These are staggering numbers. You can make it go away for now. 
clear that there's a need for believers to share the gospel with the lost and dying. Jesus shared that need with us in Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 through 38. If you have your Bible, go ahead and we'll open there and start there as a reference point this morning. Matthew 9, 37 through 38. These will be familiar words to you. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is what he tells them. He says, fellas, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers or the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest, that's me, by the way, to send out workers or laborers into the harvest field. And so I ask again the question, what could it look like if God's people in the church began to see Jesus' method for reaching the nations with the gospel? They were gripped by it and then began to live in light of that vision as if every second counts. Fellas, fellas, disciples, which would extend to you and I, followers of Christ, the harvest is plentiful. 7.3 billion people on the face of the planet, but, but the laborers are few. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many find it. But narrow is the path that leads to life, and few find it. And so would you few. Would you be in the harvest field? Would you be rubbing shoulders with the lost and doing so intentionally, remembering that every second counts? Shortly after I came to Christ in October of 2000, I began to be enamored by a couple simple but magnificent truths. First was this, that God created me, that God created us. That's the king of the universe, the one that that spoke ex nihilo, out of nothing, everything that we know in creation and everything that we don't know. He spoke it into creation. This king of glory, he wants to know me and he wants to know you. Jesus speaking to his disciples in John chapter 17. This is, this is his high priestly prayer. Just hours before he's going to be carted off to be crucified. Jesus said, now this is eternal life. What is it, Jesus? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I began to be gripped by that truth and that reality. The creator of the universe wants to know me intimately, personally. He wants to know you intimately and personally. And the second corresponding truth is this. That I have the great high privilege and you have the great high privilege and obligation of making this king of glory known. It's the great commission, right? I mean, is this not what Jesus said to his disciples just before his resurrection? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go make disciples of all nations. Why are the nations on our heart? Because the nations are on the heart of God. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. Here's discipleship, by the way, teaching them. Teaching them what? To obey everything that I've commanded you. And there's that wonderful promise at the end of the Great Commission. And surely, or lo, I'll be with you always, even to the very end. Of the age. In other words, you'll never minister alone. You'll never minister alone. You know those times where you get sweaty palms and you get the lump in your throat and you feel like you swallowed a bowling ball when you're about to share the gospel with somebody? Just remember in those moments that you're not alone. Remember what Jesus told Moses? 
or sorry, what the Lord God told Moses. He said, go and tell Pharaoh. What does Moses say? Not very eloquent. I'm not a good speaker. And what does God say? He says, go, and I'll give you the words to say. I'll remind you of the gospel that you have implanted on your heart and your mind that it might just flow out of your mouth. The two magnificent truths to know him, the creator of the universe, and to make him known to be about the king of glory's great commission. I think that what Paul said in Acts 20, 24, he said, however, and I wonder if we consider our lives this way, he said, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Boy, that flies in the face of the American dream, does it not? That flies in the face of the millennial agenda, does it not? No, I want my life to account for everything. Life is short, so live it up. Jesus says life is short, so live it out. There's a major difference. There's a major difference. Paul says here, however, I consider my life is worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. And you ask the question, what's the task, Paul? And he answers the question. He says the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. How sold out to the mission are we? individually, and as a corporate body of believers? Are we ready to draw a line in the sand and say, I I am ready to consider my life as, as worth nothing. I will spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel. Let me give you the first we believe statement this morning. You can write this down if you're taking notes. We believe that every Christian is privileged and obligated to live out the Great Commission. We believe that as a local church. Why do we believe it? Because God's word emphatically says it over and over and over again. We believe as a local church that every Christian is both privileged and obligated to live out the Great Commission. This we believe statement comes from that one word in our vision statement, on mission. Mission. K-Bible Chapel exists to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission. We want to be all about the Great Commission. Out of an overflow of worship, worship comes first. Worship fuels missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Right? When we talk about living on mission, that's a buzzword, right? We see it on bumper stickers, Christian t-shirts, websites. And that's fine. It's just a a word that that finds itself in the Christian subculture, kind of bouncing around, on mission. We're on mission. What What does it mean that we're living on mission or that we want to be a missional church? Well, I think it means a couple of simple, very clear things, though. I think it means that we care about the lost and we want to see them, we passionately want to see them come to saving faith in Christ. That's what it means to be on mission. We see 7.3 billion people. And we passionately want to see them come to saving faith in Christ. means that we care about spreading the gospel message of Christ to others and actively building relationships with unbelievers. That's your neighborhood, by the way. That's your neighborhoods, by the way. That's your next generation, by the way. We want to build relationships with unbelievers, have spiritual conversations with unbelievers, and point unbelievers to Jesus. You ever thought about what you want to be on your epitaph one day? 
What do you want to be known for at the close of your life when all is said and done? And does it have anything to do with Jesus' last words to his disciples? It's challenging for me. It's challenging for me. It's easy to talk about, but rubber meets the road as soon as we walk out these doors this afternoon and we begin to put life into practice. We care about making disciples among the peoples of the world, the nations. And we, as a church, want to be actively engaged in giving, praying, sending, and going to the hard people of the world to reach. Not everybody can go, but everybody can be involved in some going. You can pray, you can give, you can come alongside, you can encourage. Not everyone can uproot and go to the nations. But everyone can go to their neighbor, and some will go to the nations, right? We believe every Christian is privileged and obligated to live out the Great Commission. Why? Why? Because we're ambassadors. Turn over for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. There's a word that Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians 5. It's the word ambassadors. Paul calls us, every Christian without exception, ambassadors for Christ. He doesn't call just the pastors ambassadors. He doesn't call the vocational missionaries ambassadors. He calls all of us ambassadors. How do I know that? Context. Context. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Read it along with me there. Therefore, if anyone... Pause. Pastors. No. Vocational missionaries. No. What does Paul say there? Anyone. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that, you ask? He answers, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them, and entrusting to us, that's the anyone, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, or as a result, we, that's the anyone, are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore, a better word there to the original might be beg. We beg you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're ambassadors. Ambassadors means we speak for the king. What a privilege, what an obligation. It's been given to every single one of us without exception. We're ambassadors for Christ. All of our ministries, all of our evangelistic ministries will look a bit different, but no one is exempt from living out the Great Commission. No one. No one gets a pass out. And so as a local church, we we want to encourage a culture of evangelism. 
Not just the sporadic event of evangelism. We want to do whatever we can to encourage a culture that it would become a part of the DNA. That's why we ask you to stick six so you would learn a little bit about our DNA. That it would become a part of the fabric of our local church. That we realize that every single one of us without exception has been entrusted with the gospel message. With the gospel of reconciliation and as an ambassador, we have the holy and high obligation to go and share Christ with a lost and dying world. We want to encourage that here at the chapel, a culture where everyone sees themselves as engaged. You see, the Great Commission implies a sense of urgency. One of the things that I want to do is beginning Sunday, April the 8th, that's the Sunday after Easter, I'm going to teach during the 9 o'clock hour probably an eight-week-long evangelism training class. It'll be split between uh, kind of practical theology, a theology of evangelism, and then some, some practical tools and resources that you can put in your evangelism tool belt, so to speak. would encourage you, if that scratches an itch of yours, to come join us. We'll be in B2 in the basement, 9 o'clock, for about eight weeks. Okay, And we'll study the scriptures together and seek to become better evangelists for the glory of Christ. You know, it's so interesting to me as I look at Scripture how Jesus chose ordinary men and women to make much of him. Ordinary men and women with an extraordinary God. Why is that? Why is that? Why is it that God glories in using using the, the plain Jane, so to speak? Because extraordinary things done through ordinary men and ordinary women bring glory to the greatness of God. Because when unimaginable things, that's conversion, when when somebody crosses over from death to life, John 5, 24, and God uses an ordinary man, a sinful, flawed, ordinary man or woman to do so, it makes much of him. Think about some of the disciples before the Sanhedrin. That's the the Jewish council, the lawmakers, the the high society of the day. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John, let me give you some context here. Peter and John, they had healed a crippled man, right? And word got back to the the high society that this had been done, and it infuriated the Sanhedrin. Okay? And they charged Peter and John not to speak anymore. In the name of Jesus. And you'll know later on, there's, there's that uh, text where they reply, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's eyes for us to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help but speaking about that which we've seen and heard. But there was something about what the Sanhedrin saw in these two men. Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they took note. Took note what? Of What? That they had been with Jesus. That they had been with Jesus. That's worship, right? You want your life to overflow evangelistically into the lives of other people? Spend much time with Jesus. And then you won't be able to help speaking about what you've seen and heard. Jesus was teaching his disciples, come and be with me. Yoke yourselves closely to me, and then go out into the world. 
Jesus called his men in Matthew 4, 19. He said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus was always using the, the task at hand to, to draw a spiritual picture or to make a spiritual parallel. So here Jesus calls some, some would-be disciples who were fishers for a profession, who caught fish with nets and said, from now on, you'll catch the hearts of men with the gospel. Come follow me. Come follow me. Let me show it to you again. Turn over in your Bible to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. This is what the doctor, Luke, writes here. On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into the boats, which was Simon's, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master... We've toiled all night long and took nothing. We've caught nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners, one in the other boat, to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord, for he... And all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And then catch this language in your Bibles, friends. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. In other words, what Jesus is saying to his disciples here is your days of catching fish with hooks are over, but from now on you'll catch the hearts of men, the hearts of women, with the gospel. And then when you catch men, you can teach them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their mind, with all their soul, and with all their strength. And then you can teach them how to repeat the process in the lives of others. Let me share with you some of the burning desire in the hearts of men in church history. And I want you to ask yourself as you're listening, does this, does this capture your heart? Are these words a picture of your heart? They're certainly challenging to mine. Listen to David Brainerd. I cared not where or how I lived or what hardships I went through so that I could but gain souls to Christ. When I sleep, I dream of them. When I wake, they are first in my thoughts. No amount of scholastic attainment, of able and profound exposition, of brilliant and stirring eloquence can atone for the absence of deep, impassioned, sympathetic love for human souls. Is that a snapshot, a Polaroid picture of your heart? How about Spurgeon? prince of preachers. He said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring or begging them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unprayed for. Is that a Polaroid 
of your heart. How about Richard Baxter? I am contented to consume my body, to sacrifice to God's service, and to spend all that I have, and myself to be spent for the souls of men. How about the reformer John Knox? He looked at his people, his countrymen of Scotland, and he said, give me Scotland or I die. I mean, do we look at our city like that and say, Lord, give us Cape Girardeau or we die. George Whitfield, oh Lord, give me souls or take my soul. You ask yourself, do, do these statements seem radical? Do they seem out of place? If they do, they only seem radical because so often we're far from having this kind of heart. Oh, Cape Bible Chapel, would we get on our knees and pray? Earnestly pray that the Lord would give us a burning passion and desire to see our neighborhoods, to see the nations, and to see the next generation one for Christ. And that we would not relegate it to the vocational missionaries and ministers, but that we would see our own responsibility in the process. You know where it starts? It starts right next door. It starts with your neighbors. I think about my neighbors. I I am privileged to have believers that live around me and non-believers that live around me. What could it look like? Even this, here may be a radical thought, it shouldn't be radical, but what if we as neighbors who live in the same neighborhoods started meeting together and praying that the Lord would use our witness amongst our geographic small neighborhoods? What could we do? How could we get out of the box? It's one of the questions that I ask my staff every week in a weekly report. How can you get out of the box this next week? Why do I ask them that question? Because we're so prone to getting in boxes, right? And we just operate in the same ruts over and over and over again. How can we get out of the box? I, I mean, could we, could we host a barbecue and invite our neighbors to it? Could we, could we start an evangelistic Bible study and invite our neighbors to it? How can we get out of the box and be a witness for Christ in our neighborhood? I'm challenged there, personally, convicted, deeply convicted. That so often I'm content just to go here and there, to pass them, to exchange pleasantries, and just keep right on moving. God, would you give us that heart that burns for the lost of others? Let me give you the second we believe statement this morning. We believe that every Christian has been called to spiritually reproduce their life into the lives of others. Not only do we believe that every Christian is both privileged and obligated to live out the Great Commission, but we also believe, and these aren't two separate things, by the way. These these two we believe statements actually go hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. But we also believe that every Christian has been called to spiritually reproduce their their lives into the lives of others. Look at the vision statement again there. Cape Bible Chapel exists. Why? To be a gospel-centered community of worshipers doing what? On mission to make and multiply disciples of Christ. We want to make disciples. We want to multiply disciples. Turn your Bible for just a second to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 2. And let me do something that I don't normally do. 
Let me ask somebody that has 2 Timothy 2.2 memorized to stand and share it with us very clearly and very loudly. Yeah, in case you didn't hear that, thank you, Pete. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, Paul talking to Timothy here, entrust to reliable men or entrust to reliable women who will what? Who will also be qualified to teach others. It's the process of spiritual multiplication. Just like we multiply physically and we have children and we teach and train them and then we export them into the world and they marry and they have children and they teach and train them and they export them into the world. And that spiritual tree, that that physical tree, keeps multiplying down the generations. So also we Christians should be multiplying our lives spiritually into the lives of others. That there would be a spiritual reproduction tree taking place as a result of our gospel witness and as a result of our intentional life-on-life discipleship in the lives of others. And friends, let me tell you, let me just dispel the myth here. You don't have to have a PhD in systematic theology to give your life, to to pour your life into the life of another. You don't. You don't have to have an MDiv to disciple another. You have to be a growing Christian with a life worth emulating. And we ask the Lord that he would give us the grace each day to live holy and upright lives, right? That's Titus chapter 2. Help us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. We want to have that kind of life, right? A life worth emulating. And then we just want to let that rub off onto the lives of others. We believe that every Christian has been called to spiritually reproduce their life into the lives of others. And friends, let me ask you this question. Can, Can you catch a vision for that? Can you look down the road, can you look down the tracks and catch a vision for what it could look like if you committed to the process of life-on-life discipleship? All of our ministries are going to look different. Some of you have the capacity to disciple a large number of young men or a large number of young women. Some of you don't have that capacity where you are right now in life. That's okay. Do you have a man? Do you have a woman? It's one of the things Dawson Trotman said. I I would commend this to your your listening. Uh, Google, uh, Born to Reproduce by Dawson Trotman. Born to Reproduce. And listen to that 45-minute message. It's crackly and it's old, but it's phenomenal. One of the things that Trotman used to say was, men, where are your men? And women, where are your women? In other words, when you're going to Walmart, why are you going alone? Take somebody with you. There's car time there. There's aisle walking time. Just as you're doing life, which by the way is what the original language of the Great Commission says anyway. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples of all nations. The original Greek there is, as you go, make disciples of all nations. As you go to the grocery store, as you go here, as you go there, take somebody with you that you can be intentionally investing in? Do you have to do it every time you go somewhere? You don't. It's got to be realistic. But are we even thinking with the, in, in that pattern? Does that box even exist in our hearts and in our minds? 
Can you have a vision for reproducing your life spiritually into the life of another? George Bernard Shaw said this one time. He said, some men see things that are and ask why. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. Robert Woodruff, the president of the Coca-Cola Bottling Company from 1923 to 1955, boldly declared during World War II, We'll see to it that every person in uniform gets a bottle of Coca-Cola for five cents wherever he is and whatever it costs. After the war, he said that he wanted everyone in the world to have tasted Coca-Cola in his lifetime. And I say, wow, what a dream, what a vision, what a passion. But at the end of the day, what does it matter? What does it matter? What has it accomplished to further the kingdom of Christ? What if we took that same vision and applied it spiritually? Lord, I want to see in my lifetime you use me to preach the gospel to everyone I come in contact with. And sometimes I'm going to cower in sinful fear, but I want to repent and get up and go do it all over again. Can you have a vision for that? The widow of visionary Walt Disney was once asked to speak at Disney World's grand opening. And as she was introduced, the master of ceremonies turned to her and said, in front of the crowd, as he's welcoming her up, said, I just wish Walt could have seen all this. Do you know what she said? He did. He did. He saw it. He had a vision for it. And again, I say, can you, can you take that and can you apply it spiritually? Can you, can you look down the tracks of life and have a vision for multiplying your life into the lives of others? You see, Walt saw it before it ever happened and he lived for it. These are some of the things that I lay in bed awake at night and I, I just wonder, God, how, how can you use me? How, how can you use our church to propel the gospel to the nations like this? I have a short video clip that I want to show here from the movie Pay It Forward. It's an oldie but a goodie. And it illustrates the process of multiplication, what spiritual multiplication should look like for us as believers. Think of an idea that can change the world. That's the assignment teachers giving to students. Put it into action. This is your assignment. Extra credit. It goes on all year long. Now, wait a minute. What? What? What's wrong with this? What's the matter? Yes? It's, it's like so... So what? There must be a word to finish that sentence. Someone help her? Weird. Crazy. Crazy. Hard. Bummer. Bummer. Hard. How about possible? It's possible. The realm of possibility exists where? In each of you. So you can do it. 
that's me. That's me. And that's three people. And I'm going to help them. But it has to be something really big. Something they can't do by themselves. So I do it for them. Then they do it for three other people. That's nine. And I do three more. That's 27, so I'm not really good at math, but it gets big really fast, you know? please? Yes. I think it's a good idea. Sean? It's stupid. Adam? It's the honor system. People blow off the honor system. So what? Just because you do. <laughs> well, Trevor, the class seems to think that you've come up with an overly utopian idea. Look that word up in a minute. Like a perfect world? Mm-hmm. So? 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And the things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, you go and entrust to reliable men or reliable women who will also be qualified to teach others, who will be qualified to teach others, who will be qualified to teach others. Let me just get your brain here for just a second. Anybody play checkers or chess? How many squares on a checkerboard? 64. Eight by eight, right? If you took a grain of rice... Just an illustration of multiplication here. Took a grain of rice and placed it on the first square, and then you multiplied it by itself on each subsequent square. So square one, one grain of rice. Square two, two grains of rice. Square three, four grains of rice. Square four, 16. Square five, 256. And it gets real big real quick. We get up to 65,356 and then to 4.3 billion. I mean, it's, it's only the, the seventh or eighth square until we've lost the checkerboard altogether. Okay? But if you continue to multiply that out by itself, do you know how much rice you'd have when you got to the end of the 64th square? You would have enough rice to cover the entire subcontinent of India, which is almost 12 million square miles, 50 feet deep. It's the power of multiplication. Who will you invest in and teach and train them to repeat the process? You ever wonder how is the world going to be reached for Christ? It's Jesus' method. This is not new. It's not novel. It's not something that we've come up with. It's Jesus' method to his disciples. Matthew 4.19, Jesus calls those would-be fishers, and he says, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And then just a few pages later, Matthew 9, 36 through 38, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the, but the laborers or the workers are few. So you disciples pray to me, the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers or laborers into the harvest field. And then you have the great commission over Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go make disciples of all nations. In other words, fellas, you're the answer to your own prayer. How could God use us as a local congregation to reach the world for Christ, intentional evangelism, and life-on-life discipleship. Where? In our neighborhoods. Grow where you're planted, friends. In our neighborhoods, among the nations by extension, and of the next generation. We'll talk more about those next week. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the high and holy privilege uh, that each of us has been given 
but also the obligation that we have all been given to preach the good news to all creation. Help us to be faithful and obedient to that call. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.